From Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show exploring what it takes to build a big global business. I'm Christopher Lawson. We're now a couple of years into our journey at Lawson Media, and one of the issues that comes up when you're trying to build any business is culture. How do you develop a culture that inspires your staff to fulfill the mission of the company? Now, I've worked in plenty of places where culture wasn't a big focus, and those organisations had a real issue with staff being motivated to do their best work. I'd be talking to people who were constantly complaining about the way the business was run, and it didn't really foster creativity. So how do you build a great company culture? And how do you keep tabs on your culture when growing your company? Didier Alzinger is the CEO and founder of CultureAmp, a platform that allows companies around the world to measure their culture and then use that data to improve the experience for their staff. So CultureAmp is a people and culture platform. And what does that mean? It helps organizations collect data everywhere in the employee life cycle. So how do people feel as they're joining the company? How do people feel as they're leaving the company? How do people feel while they're at the company? How do they collect feedback from each other? So how do you feel about your manager? What sort of performance feedback is your manager giving you? How do teams going? All those sorts of places. So how do we collect data everywhere? How do we understand that data? So we pull it all together, we analyze it, we provide benchmarks, we do all these things to help companies understand what that data is telling them. And then most importantly, how do we act on that? So what do we do with that data? So CultureAmp is a people and culture platform to help people collect, understand, and act on employee feedback. Didier's journey to become the CEO of CultureAmp, a global company which was recently valued at more than a billion dollars, really started in the Adelaide Hills. So uh, I was born in Canberra. Uh, my dad was doing a PhD in ANU. With a name like Didier, I often get asked, so are you French? And the answer is no. I have a Dutch father and an Australian mother, and they couldn't agree, so they chose French. Uh, but I, I grew up, we ended up, uh, my parents ended up in Adelaide. And interestingly, ended up in Adelaide because my mum's an artist, and this was the Don Dunstan years where if you were a, an artist in Australia, South Australia was the place to be. Mm-hmm. And so they moved there and um, I I think I was four or something. So I grew up in Adelaide, specifically in the Adelaide Hills. What were you like as a kid growing up? What were you into? What, um, what sort of fascinated you? Oh, wow. Um, lots of things. Uh, my brother Ramon uh, and I, so it was really interesting because it was just my parents, Ramon and I. So we had family in Victoria and we had family in Europe, but no one in the same state. So it was just us. Played a lot of sport. You know, most of the time at home was my brother and I trying to beat each other at basketball, at cricket, at, you know, any sport we could come up with. My parents actually met in Japan. And so I was very interested in Japanese things. I grew up reading all of that, Tibetan Buddhism, loved, you know, fantasy. My mum's as an artist, was a silk painter. or is a, She's a textile artist, but she's a silk painter, and she painted a lot of imaginary, fantastic creations. And so, you know, as a kid, I played a lot of sport, but I was also a nerd, uh, and I was a dreamer, <laughs> and somebody, you know, I played Dungeons and Dragons. I, you know, got into flights of fancy and, and all that sort of stuff, and I read a ton, and I still do. Didier grew up largely as the internet was being developed. It was a time when there was nothing but opportunity for people interested in tech. And throughout his schooling years, he became more and more interested in the possibilities. 
my dad was the one that exposed me to that because he, you know, he was using computers in his own work and looking at data and, and different things. I enjoyed playing around with them. We used to follow this pattern where we would get a computer game and then I would pretty quickly get the high score because uh, I learned really fast. And then about a week later, my brother Ramon would beat my high score consistently because he was just more, he, he was more dedicated than I was. <laughs> At which point I would essentially hack the game and change his name to be not my name on the scoreboard and then we'd both get annoyed and stop playing the game anymore. And this kind of pattern would repeat. And so I was kind of fascinated by computers and, and hacking around with them and teaching myself to program. And so while I was in high school, I did quite a bit of stuff at the school. I went to Heathfield High, which is a, a public school, and yet we, we had quite a good little computer lab and I would spend quite a bit of time in there writing things. I had the fortune in year 10 or 11, I think it was, to go to a place called the Technology School of the Future, which was set up in South Australia. It was funded to have a whole bunch of the latest material. And I can't even remember how I got there, but it was like a week. And I spent a week there and I sort of fell in love with all this stuff. And one of the things I fell in love with was uh, a piece of software called Adobe Photoshop 1.0. And so I was playing with that. And I actually used that in year 12 to do my visual art major. My work for my year 12 art was digital manipulated photography using Photoshop 1.0. As Didier finished school and moved on to college, he made the decision to study computer science at the University of Adelaide. And one of the reasons I chose computer science was that computer science was the only course that got its own mandatory email account. If, if you weren't doing computer science, you had to pay about $20 a year to get, a, to get one through the uni. And so um, I, I picked computer science. And so there was, I remember Mosaic, the browser, yes. uh, being the, the, the one that was just come onto the world when I was doing first year computer science. Wow. What was your first uh, computer that you owned? Me personally, I actually don't know. But my dad was um, a psychologist. Uh, he was an, an Apple guy. And so we had a Fat Mac, if you remember the Fat Mac, which was the one after the, not the very original, but it was the 128 and then the 512. And then we had a series of Macs. So I had an SE30, had a 2FX, and then we're jumping around a bit, but post uh, finishing my degree, I started working at Rising Sun in film. And so the first computer that I was the only person that used was a silicon graphics box that cost more than my house. <laughs> I didn't pay for it, though. <laughs> Truthfully, Didier wanted to do visual art, but after seeing his mother struggle to make it as an artist, he decided computer science would allow him a good mix of being involved in technology, but also holding on to his artistic dreams. So when he graduated, he joined a small visual effects startup called Rising Sun Pictures. I think they had five people when I joined. Right. What what, uh, what was your job there and what attracted you to working at a startup? They were doing cool stuff with computer graphics. That's all I needed to know. <laughs> um, while I was at uni, I worked on campus on the Apple store. So Apple had a store on campus and I, I worked in that. The very first job I had was actually Color Prepress. So while I was doing my year 12 Prac, I was working at a place called Corporate Color. Or sorry, I, I used a place like Corporate Color and they gave me work experience and then they offered me a job. And I remember going home and saying to mum and dad, what do you think I should do? Should I go to uni or should I take this job? They were offer- offering me the princely sum of $12,000 a year, which seemed like a lot of money at the time. And I remember dad saying to me, look, you do what you want to do. Um, we'll back you either way. But I think you should go to uni because it's a social experience that you can never have again. 
there was a second thing he said, which I can't remember. But the third thing he said, which I, I definitely remember, is you go to uni to learn to think. And they won't teach you that on the job. And so I actually went back to them and said, look, I'm really flattered. Thank you. How about I work for you until I go to uni? And so I worked a couple of months in, in Color Prepress, which was fantastic. And they, they taught me a lot. Uh, and it probably set me up for some of the stuff that I did later. Uh, and then I went to uni. And while I was at uni, I worked on the Apple campus. And I met Tony Clark from Rising Sun Pictures whilst working for, for the Apple store. And I just ran across him and saw that he was doing this computer graphic stuff. And I'm like, this is amazing. Can I come out and check out what you're doing? And he said, sure. So I came out and I did a tour with a friend of mine. And we saw the whole place and they had all these SGIs. And I was really excited because I knew what they were. And got to the top and I saw he had a little uh, Silicon Graphics indie. And there was a jazz drive attached to it, which is an old optical hmm. uh, I remember storage those. thing. Yeah. yeah. And I said to Tony, uh, are you having trouble with the jazz drive? And he's like, yeah, the damn thing, we can't get it to work. And I said, which version of RX are you running on the Indie? And he's like, oh, 5.3, um, but we're just about to upgrade to 6.1. I said, well, it's not going to work on 6.1 either. You have to get it to 6.2 um, because the jazz drive won't work. And he's like, oh, okay, that's great. We walked out and my friend Brett uh, said to me, what was that? Like, how did you know that? And the the truth is, and this is kind of like my, my, uh, my dirty secret, if you will, I, that's all I knew about silicon graphics. Like the sum total of my knowledge around silicon graphics computers was that an, a jazz drive wouldn't work on a pre six point. I'd read it in a news group the day before, and so my one secret to success is that I I know one little thing about quite a few things, and so then if I can pitch that the right way, people will assume I know everything else, and then I just have to run like hell to catch up. And so what happened in this situation is uh, Tony basically reached out to me and and asked me if I wanted work experience, and then. I did work experience and I was just sort of hanging around. And then Gail, who's one of the owners, a couple of days later, she saw me and said, you know, do you work here? And I said, no, but I'd like to. And they offered me a job as a sysadmin. So I started life as a sysadmin mm-hmm. uh, working for Rising Sun. Being a startup, Didier was involved in a lot of different projects and quickly impressed the founders. He had proved himself in the early days and the founders rewarded him with a lot of trust and responsibility. Yeah, so uh, I was working as a sysadmin and as a software engineer. I mean, when you're a six or seven person company, everybody's doing Everyone a bit of everything. everything. Yeah. Uh, my very first thing that I did was building a, a tool for Softimage to control a motion control rig. Mm-hmm. So Rising Sun had its own little hothead that they were controlling. And so we were writing software so that it would control it. And most of the trick was not controlling it because that was fairly easy, but making sure that you weren't going to destroy the rig. In the computer, you can make it do all these things. But if you try and make it do that in the real world, you know, the head flies off. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned a lot about cameras <laughs> and I learned a lot about things like that and started writing software in the color management space, which ended up becoming a, another spin-out company that we still have to do this day called Cospective, or was Rising Sun Research, and started getting into compositing, which is the image processing, moving images, basically mm-hmm. Adobe Photoshop with moving images. And the Rising Sun was started by four people. So there was Tony, Wayne and Gail and Steve Roberts, and Steve Roberts was the compositor. So... Uh, Wayne was animating, Gail basically ran everything, and Tony was the cinematographer, and together they did everything. Uh, A few years in, Steve Roberts decided to step out, and so it created a void because there was nobody doing what he was doing, and Tony, Wayne, and Gail basically came to me and said, look, do you want to do the compositing part? Because I was already doing a lot of image processing anyway, and so I put my hand up and said, yep, that sounds good, let me do that. And uh, yeah, became a compositor, then a supervisor, and ended up as the general manager, uh, and ultimately the CEO. 
and the company was working on some really, uh, really big budget um, productions as well while you were there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was there for thirteen years. Mm. So, uh, Rising Sun was a, a was and is, you know, in a massive component of who I am and and what I've got to. It's probably two halves. So mm-hmm. the first four or five years of that was we were a post-production company. We did CD-ROMs. We did websites. We did TV commercials. We did a little bit of film. What we found was that we were too daggy for advertising. <laughs> like, you know, a lot of that world is people come in and they want to pay a 1000 bucks an hour for a flame and they want a couch that befits paying a 1000 bucks an hour for a flame. Uh, we were much more in the film mold, which is when the director walks in, they're like, here's a milk crate to sit on. They're like, good, because I want all the money on the screen. <laughs> and uh, that suited us well. So we, we kind of gravitated towards that anyway, and, and we had the opportunity to, to do some work on some good films, and we built that into something else. And yeah, over the, over the 13 years, we became almost a pure Hollywood visual effects company. And we worked on Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Batman, Superman. And since I left, they've continued to do amazing work on you know, X-Men, Gravity, uh, Game of Thrones, all sorts of incredible projects. As the company started to evolve, was there a point where you personally was like, like, this is it for me? Like, this is this is so interesting. I'm so fascinated with what's going on. Um, like, this is a place I want to work for a long period of time. Like, was there a moment like that for you? Yes. I think not so much because I suddenly went, cool, now this is really interesting. This is where I want to be forever. I, I think I'm a relatively loyal person anyway, so mm-hmm. that's always been a big part of it. And Wayne, Tony and Gail gave me a lot of opportunity and they trusted me probably more than than you should reasonably expect someone to trust a you know 19 20 22 24 like I was made CEO when I was 26 um, and that was hugely important to me that I was being given all these opportunities so it wasn't just the work it was also that I was given autonomy and, and the ability to try and make them happen and we were making this up as we went along we were trying like we loved film but was there a business in it could we afford to not do commercials Film is a brutal industry and a really, really difficult one to be successful over the long term. And I reflect on it. I, I now have, uh, you know, many of the companies that I used to work with on the other side as, as customers, and I talk to them too. So, you know, your Animal Logics and your Moving Picture Companies mm. and your Pixar's and so on. And I talk to them about the industry. And when I look back, since I left Rising Sun nine years ago, half the people I used to compete with are all gone. Those companies are just not in business anymore. Um, so, you know, it's a testament to the to the founders of RSP that they're still around and doing amazing work. Um, it was a really, really difficult business. But, yeah, for, for, for 10 of those 13 years, the thought of going anywhere else or doing anything else just never crossed my mind. Didier became the general manager and then CEO of Rising Sun Pictures by the time he was just 26. At the time, the company had around 35 people and was still struggling in the aftermath of September 11. There was a pivotal project for us. There was pivotal moments. There were moments where we almost died. 9-11 as a global event was obviously catastrophic. It was also catastrophic in the film industry because what happened is film is a confidence game. And so in the in the days and the weeks and the months after the event, and interestingly or kind of strangely enough, I remember I went into the office early on the morning where that was all happening and nobody else was in the office and I went in because I was trying to finish off a shot that I had to work on and so I was sitting there setting something up at like five or six in the morning 
and I hit render and then while I was waiting for the thing to render, I was reading the news groups and I was watching this flame war erupt in the news group and I couldn't figure out what was going on and people were hurling abuse at each other. And then I kind of figured something's happened. What am I going to go do? And then I went and turned the TV on and I actually was, I watched the second plane hit or, you know, it just happened sort of thing. And so I saw all that happen. I was like, oh, whoa, you know, what's going on? And then the months later, what happened was no films got greenlit because nobody knew what the future was going to be. Everyone was worried. And then, you know, eventually things got back on Ever 40 and started stuff happening and so on. But that was like an air bubble that ran through the film industry. And because we're at the back end of it, a year and a bit later, there's no work. There was nothing. There was no visual effects to be done. And so we were in this awful situation where we suddenly, you know, a few things fell over. And one of the first things I had to do when I was, it was I was actually GM at the time, but, you know, essentially being tasked with running the company was get up in front of the 30 odd people we have and say, I don't know how we're going to meet payroll next week because the projects we had have all fallen over and there's just nothing in the pipeline. And that was, that was really hard. Thankfully, about four days later, we landed work on um, Lord of the Rings, and that was a you know a rescue job. We had to get well, not a rescue job, but a, you know we had to come in and help them get the film finished. And so we went from having nothing to you know doing the some of the best work of our lives you know wow. in the space of a week. And so that whole thing was was tricky. But we were about thirty people, and then off the back of that, we worked on a project called Charlotte's Web. That really helped make. Rising Sun, in the sense that we grew from thirty to one hundred and fifty in about a in about a year. Wow! And I didn't know it at the time, but now I look back and realize that it was really formative for me because over the next two years we were growing like crazy. And I remember thinking at the time when we, you know, quintupled in size. People tell me this growth thing's really hard. I've got it nailed. <laughs> I am so good. This is so awesome. We're doing everything right. What you realize, of course, is that growth mm. and more money coming in pastes over all the problems. And once the music stops, you realize all the mistakes you made, all the things you didn't do right, all the things you didn't invest in. Uh, and a lot of those are around people. Mm. And so I learn a lot through that process that helped probably inform what I now do. I mean, that's that's insane growth. Um, and and how, do you, how did you deal with that? Like as a young, young leader in the company, then having to figure out we just we need more people how do you deal with that from like a culture perspective etc and how do you actually how do you actually handle rapid scale i mean i think the first thing is it's never just one person mm-hmm. so uh it's not just me it's you know it's the founders tony it's wayne it's gail it's the other leaders you know i was lucky to have amazing people um you know, James and John, and uh, there are a lot of really interesting people there that were also asking the same question, like, how do we solve this problem? One of the things that's great in the film industry, though, is, you know, there's that whole line in show business, the show must go on. And so there's just this from top to bottom, doesn't matter whether you're a runner, a compositor, or a director, there's this just this insane drive to get the show to the screen. And that kind of forces you through all these things. And that's what we were, you know, the film gets needs to get made somehow. We have to make it happen. It's not always pretty. It's hard. I mean, I worked harder in film than I've ever worked before or after. Uh, and I, I sometimes look back and, and you know, we spent a lot of time at Coltramp working with customers and, and internally talking about 
what does it mean to build sustainable success? What does it mean to deal with well-being and mental health in the workplace and all these sorts of things? And then I sit back and think, I'm probably drawing from two of the most dysfunctional industries in the world, which is Hollywood and Silicon Valley, mm. both of which are not set up to be healthy. Uh, so I learn both good things you know, and bad things in that process. The one thing I would take away from that is I learned how to hire people and I learned how to, and this is something that I talk about now today, which is I think that one of the most important skills that any senior leader can have in any part of the business is to convince people much better than you have any right to have to come and join your company. And if I look back on my time at RSP, that would be one of the things I was proud of is that I and others, it's never one person's job, we were able to go get amazing people around the world to come to Adelaide and work with us to bring our dreams to reality. I'm asking this on, on a personal level, um, just because like I, I studied animation for film and television when I was at university before I moved into journalism. And one of the things I found is that it completely ruined movies for me. <laughs> <laughs> did did sort of working on the on the visual effects aspect of movies, did that ruin cinema for you? Can, can you go and enjoy a film or does your mind sort of, you know, think about the programming and code and squares and meshes are behind everything. It ruins movies for the people that go with you. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> but now I've ruined it for the person next to me because I'm talking about this shot and complaining about that and going, that shot was obviously, you know, done at the last minute and why was that? And all those sorts of things. Um, it changes the way you appreciate film, I mm -hmm. think. I think at its best the great thing is you get to see it from the inside and you get to be around incredibly talented people. Like I remember this was earlier even, you know, when I was younger, like 22 or 23, we were pitching a particular film and this director came in and he had this whole thing built around Hawaiian mythology and I'm a bit of a mythology nut. And so I know quite a lot about Celtic mythology. I knew nothing about Hawaiian mythology. They're very similar in many ways. You can kind of do almost a one-to-one -one mapping between a lot of the different main players. And so I had this like hour and a half conversation with this director of this film about comparative mythology. And I sort of walked out and I said to one of my friends, like, pinch me. Like, this is so cool. I'm getting paid to have conversations about comparative mythology. And so you take that when you go watch the films too, because you're like, you're, you know what they're thinking about and why they're trying to do the things they're doing. But the enduring image for me from having worked in film is a few years ago, we did our Christmas party here for Coltramp. And it was the, you know, the latest Star Wars had come out. And so we're like, we'll all go watch it. So we hired out two small cinemas and everybody came and we watched it. And there's a lot of Star Wars nuts. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And then at the end, the credits roll, the lights turn on and everybody files out. And I sat there and I was the only person in the cinema and I watched all the credits. And then I went back to the Christmas party and I was saying to people that it was actually a really humbling experience to remind yourself that, you know, visual effects is interesting because... Credits in a film are done in historical order of when that part was brought into the film vernacular, which is why hairdressers are, are earlier usually than visual effects, because visual effects came late. And so when you're in visual effects, you have to wait till the end to see your name, which means you realize that you should wait and sit and watch everybody else's. And that for me is the enduring thing that I took away from film, which is just that honoring of all the work, all the effort and all the energy. So... It ruined some parts of film for me, but I think it gave me more. What's the biggest misconception that people have about Hollywood in the film industry? 
I think it's in in all these things, and I don't think this is tr- is specific to Hollywood. I think it's true for the music industry. I think it's true for Hollywood. It's true for Silicon Valley. It's probably true. It's true for investment banking. It's true for restaurants. It's never as glamorous as it looks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, particularly in these things, there's a there's a, a re, there's a desire for the industry to portray itself in a certain way, and we willingly allow that portrayal to happen. But of course, once you're in there and you realize how it, it all happens, you realize it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> A few years later, in the CEO chair, Didier started to get an itch, an itch to do something bigger. And part of that was driven by a chance meeting he had with two young founders working on a startup called Atlassian. There's a couple of things that led into it. So three years before I left, I went through Entrepreneur of the Year, which is the EY program uh, with Rising Sun. And it was actually, you know, to my to this day, it's one thing, one really pivotal moment in my life. And I owe Tony, Wayne and Gail a huge debt of gratitude to this, which was they basically said, if you're an entrepreneur and you're doing something, you know, they reached out to people and said, we think you might be a, a contender to win in this category. And they reached out to Rising Sun. And so we put in a nomination and they said, we love your thing. I mean, you're doing Hollywood from Adelaide. Who doesn't love that story? We were, you know, $20 million a year revenue business, 200 employees. They said, this is great. But they said, look, one change we would suggest you make to the nomination form is that this is really entrepreneur of the year. So ideally you put one person up, maybe two or three, but you're never going to win with four, just being honest. And when we looked at the backgrounds and stuff, the three of you founded the company, you've got Didier on the nomination, he probably shouldn't be there. You know, ideally one of you three, at best all three of you. And Wayne, Tony and Gail just said, nope, we're doing it together. And even though I didn't found the company, I had a small equity stake, but not not similar to what they had. They said, it's either all four of us, it's none of us. And so we went forward on that basis. We did win our category. Uh, we went to the Nationals. And as part of the process for the Nationals, I met two young guys by the name of Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar. And they were building this little business called Atlassian. Uh, we became good friends. And over the next three years, I'm watching them build a monotonic revenue curve business. And I'm building a service business for Hollywood. And there's a line from Warren Buffett that kind of was kicking around in my head for three years, which is, when a management team with a reputation for results meets an industry with a reputation for poor economics, it's the industry that survives with its reputation intact. <laughs> and I watched Mike and Scott build this business. And, you know, when we met, we were rough, Atlassian was roughly the same size. I don't think even, I, I, I had a huge amount of respect for them at the time and I was watching them succeed, but even I had no idea how amazing a business they were building. And you look at what they've done now, it's just phenomenal. Mm. And, and I still count them both as really good friends. But it was that was what led me to leave, is that over three years, I kept coming back to this idea of, I love working for Hollywood. I love telling stories, but I want to make more of a difference in the world. This business model is broken and I can't see how to fix it. And it was that combination with this thinking of, I'm still young and I can afford to fail. And it really came down to, do I want to take a bigger swing? Do I want to push myself and try for something bigger? And, and ultimately, I decided, yes, I decided that... 
I needed to try and make something happen that was bigger than that. And so I made the decision to, to leave. And that was not an easy decision. I actually tried to leave Rising Sun twice. Um, they <laughs> talked me out of it successfully twice. Um, but ultimately, I was like, you know, I've, I've given everything I can to this and I can't figure out how I can, mm. I can do more. It was probably egotistical, to be honest, in, in leaving. But it was ultimately the right thing for me, and and it gave me the opportunity to go and pursue a bigger and different dream. How how so? How egotistical? How do you mean? So one of the things that I say to people is that you know even at RSP and, and there was two businesses: there's Rising Sun Pictures and there's Rising Sun Research, which I co-founded with the owners of RSP, and we built a color management software that we ended up selling to THX, and then we built a synchronized QuickTime player that won a Technical Academy Achievement Award. You mm-hmm. know, Chris Nolan uses on all these films, uh, and that company is now called Cospective. And they're doing really well. In both situations, people are like, how did you do this from Adelaide? And I was like, too naive to know that I couldn't. You know, you just sort of turn up and try. And what drives you is a combination of sort of fear and pride. And so the egotism is, you know, I was late 20s running this amazing company from Adelaide and thinking I can do better than this. You know, I should be able to make more of a difference in the world. That's part of the egotism. And then just, it's a, it's a naivety, I think, more right. than anything. I actually think that's an important part of being an entrepreneur. Didier knew that his next step would be starting a software company, but he wasn't quite sure what that company would even be. And after the break, Didier makes his move into the world of tech with a crazy business plan. This is Building a Unicorn. I'm Christopher Lawson. Rising Sun Pictures was doing amazing work in the film industry, yet Didier still felt the call to give up his great job and start building something new. But the truth was, he didn't quite know what he wanted to build. However, he did have a crazy, audacious goal for his new business. And I wrote down the world's most naive business plan. 10,000 by 10,000 equals 100 million. If I can build a company that has tens of thousands of customers spending tens of thousands of dollars a year, I'll have hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. There you go. Let's go do it. Um, I didn't know what type of software company yet. And and that was I spent some time thinking about and I just kept coming back to the fact that people and culture was the thing I cared about the most. And if I looked at my time at RSP, we were early in what is now known as agile development. So I was a bit of a nerd on all of that sort of stuff as well. So what I would call Eastern Lean, um, the precursors to what we currently call agile in terms of extreme programming and Scrum and mm-hmm. Crystal Method and all these different things. But at its core, what it was, was the application of new ways of thinking about engaging people in the world of work. And we were applying those to film. How do you bring together animators and creative directors and, and programmers and all these people to do stuff that you shouldn't be able to do mm-hmm. <laughs> with less resources than you really need to get it done. And so when I look back on it, I thought the thing that that motivates me the most, the thing that I enjoy the most is figure out how to help people be successful. So why don't I build software that tries to do that too? Around this time, Didier and his wife were expecting their second child and they wanted to challenge themselves. While he loved working in Adelaide and had been successful at Rising Sun Pictures, he knew he wanted to build something on a much larger scale. So there's no problem with being able to get great people. It's harder to get 100. 
uh, and it's just it's the nature of a smaller city. Like you know, you have to you have to get people to ha- have kids or want certain things, and then you got to target them, and you can get them. And I was thinking big, and I'm like, if I'm going to do something bigger than what I've done before, I need the opportunity to play on a bigger playing field. Uh, and I, you know, I talked. I was lucky to meet a bunch of other successful people, and one of the things I observed in all of them was just this willingness to keep testing yourself. Like, if you've succeeded on this playing field, then go to that playing field. And when you're playing at the right level, there is an infinite number of playing fields <laughs> um, that you need to measure yourself on. So I was kind of naively, egotistically wanting to push myself. And we talked about moving overseas, but having kids, we're like, we actually like Australia. It's a great place to live. It's a good balance in, in work life. So we want to stay here. So then it was really about, do we go to Melbourne or Sydney? Good reasons to go to both. We ended up coming to Melbourne because we found a school that we could get the kids into. Then we had some friends here. It was a fairly quick thing. My wife is an opera singer and there was some music stuff here. Uh, we made the decision and to go. The time from when we decided we should start looking to when we moved to Melbourne was 11 weeks. Wow. So we kind of said, all right, well, let's do it. And then next thing we knew, we were living in Melbourne. Moving is hard at the best of times, let alone when you're trying to build a new startup. Didier was still going through the process of working out what the company would actually even be. It's an iterative process that every startup founder needs to embrace if they want to be successful. He knew he had to solve a problem around culture, but he was still working out some of the details. So I was working on what I called performance development, uh, continuous performance development. So why is it that we have this universally loathed annual backwards looking process when what we actually want is a forwards looking continuous coaching conversation? Uh, And at the time I had a a Twitter feed or Twitter search, which was success factors sucks. No disrespect to the people at SAP who I know quite well, but uh, success factors had done an incredible job in taking an offline process online. And I was like, oh, that's really ugly and painful. There's got to be a better way of doing it. And so that was what I was focused on doing. And that's what I was trying to build. And what we found is, you know, I moved to Melbourne. I met my co-founders here. And what we realized was that it was a problem it was a universal problem without a universal solution, and it was we were struggling to get the traction that we thought we should get. We couldn't work out why. And it took us about six months to come to the realization that wasn't going to work. And so we finally had the discipline to say, all right, if this is not growing, we, we need to invest in something else. We're going to pivot, you know, to use the, the, the common vernacular. And so we actually came up with a second idea, um, which was around uh, this concept of checklists as a lightweight business process management idea that came out of the Checklist Manifesto, fantastic book by Adol Gawand. We were much more disciplined. We killed that idea in six weeks. And then we came to the idea that the business is now based on, which is what if it's the same idea, but rather than trying to solve it at the individual level, we need to solve it at the organizational level. And that's what we did and what we set out to do. And we had our first customer within four weeks. And you know, as they say, the rest is history. What's interesting is that Earlier in the year, we acquired a company called Zagata that five years afterwards had gone and tried to solve the problem we set out to solve and had done it better. And so now we're full circle. And so you you were working on this idea uh, by yourself um, for a little while. Um, So how did you actually meet your co-founders? So I was was doing a talk in Sydney on creativity and innovation and all this sort of stuff. Uh, Because one of the things that I had the fortune to get good at when I was at RSP is talking in front of people. Like I was a terrible public speaker in school. I hated it. Like I would hold the lectern and my hands would shake. Um, For some reason, while I was at RSP, I made the decision that it would be really valuable and useful to be able to talk in front of groups of people. And so I would just say yes to everything that got put in front of me. And over time I got better. And so 
after I left RSP, because of what I'd done at RSP, I was still given a lot of opportunities to talk to people about things. And so I was doing something in Sydney and I met uh, Tom Howard from Adioso. And he's he was from Melbourne and he said, oh, you know, you're in Melbourne, you should come to this dinner. Uh, there's a dinner of um, startup founders where we just, you know, commiserate with each other. <laughs> so I came along to this dinner and uh, I met uh, John and Doug and we got chatting and they're like, where are you working from? And I said, oh, from home. And they're like, well, we're working in this tiny little co-working space. It was the original version of I-9 in Cremorne. Why don't you come and hang out with us? And so I did. And interestingly, it was three levels. The bottom level was just a walk-in. The second level was where the toilet was. And the third floor was where most people worked. John and Doug had two tiny little desks next to the toilet on the second floor. And I don't know why, but I ended up sitting between them on that second floor. And so for the next six months, I was building my business. They were building their own startup, which was an awesome, awesome idea for about 10 people in the world, which they eventually came to the conclusion uh, was true. And so we got to the end of the year and then went, it was this kind of funny thing where they were about to go back to consulting because their startup wasn't going to work. I was struggling mightily to get I can write code but I'm not I'm not a world class software engineer. And so we sort of looked at each other and they're like we're two software engineers that are looking for a problem to solve and I'm like I have a problem to solve that needs two software engineers software architects we should join up. And so we had a few conversations and it seemed like a good idea and and then they said if we're going to do this there's an, another person we want to bring in Rod Hamilton. Uh, we've always wanted to work with him so if we do this we should do this with him too. And it was really hard for me because I was like, all right, I'm going for 100. Because one of the things is if we're going to do this, we're going to do this equally. Mm. Like you're going to come on board. We're all going to be in it together. And I took a lot from talking to Mike and Scott about the fact that building anything for the long run is a marathon, not a sprint. And so you don't want to over-optimize for what somebody's doing today. You want to pick people that you're willing to go to battle for mm. you know 10 years plus. And so I went in going, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it because we're all in it together. And so I was looking at going from 100% of the company to 25% of the company. Mm. But what got me over the line was thinking about it going, look, I hadn't met Rod. I spent like an hour with Rod at the time. But I'm like, if I believe in these two people, John and Doug, then I have to believe in their belief in other people. I'm in for a penny or for a pound. Let's just do it. And it's the best decision I ever made. This is something that a lot of founders um, really struggle with is well, how, how do we actually split the pie at, at the start of the company? How do we decide who actually does what and um, how, you know, a, a lot of a lot of companies fail because people don't make smart decisions at the very beginning of the company. Mm. But you, you seem, it, it sounds like you're of the view that um, because, because you trusted your other founders, you should just trust them implicitly. I would be the last person to say that there's a right answer to this. It is really, really hard. I guess the way I approached it was I wanted to build a company where we were all in it for the long haul for the same reason. So I needed to have that approach. I mean, my advice to other people would be, there are times where it's appropriate for it to be asymmetric, depending on the skills and experience that other people are bringing. We had the benefit that we were all roughly the same age. We all had roughly the same experience. That became a problem too, because as we've you know, talked about publicly, this is a company that was founded with four white 30-something male IT brunettes. So on any f- diversity factor that you can see, uh, we were monoculture. But that also meant that it was easier in a way to say, look, we should all be equal. Like we're all bringing the same to the table. It wasn't a situation of one founder being a 20-plus year CEO and the other person being straight out of school. It was we were all fairly similar. And so what I would say to most people is like, don't sweat the small stuff in this. Like, don't micro optimize it because it will 
come back to create resentment later. Definitely you do a vesting schedule. If you're in it together, you should 25, 25, 25, 25, vest over four years. So if all of you are here in four years' time, you're all in it together. If someone leaves halfway through, they should only have half the equity. That's fairly simple. But I'm a believer in make it simple and get on with it and don't don't have reasons for people to get upset. And how are you how are you funding sort of like the initial uh, the initial company? So we were fortunate because we were all in our early 30s and we'd all been successful at some like we'd been re- okay, you know reasonably not massively well paid but reasonably well paid that we could afford to work without being paid for a period of time. And so Culture Amp was bootstrapped to a million in revenue by the founders. So we put a little bit of money in that was our savings. And then we didn't get paid for, you know, a year and a half. And we made up the difference by at one point where we didn't quite, couldn't quite make the numbers work. Two of us went back consulting while the other two kept pushing the business along. After spending a year working on the business on his own, Didier found some co-founders. And it was early 2011 when the team really worked out what their product would be. Finding initial customers is a challenge for any business, but for CultureAmp, they'd already done the legwork of talking to people who may be interested in the product, finding their pain points, and then building them a solution. And from that point, we had revenue from four weeks after we had that idea, because what we actually did is we said, okay, we've learned a lot now. John and I sat down uh, and put together a, a four-page PDF we had Jason McPherson, Dr. Jason McPherson, who's our chief scientist. He was our first employee. He was working three days a week for us. We were paying him out of the little bit of money that we had. We created this four-page PDF, pitched it to 10 CEOs, four said they'd buy it if we built it. So we built it, and four weeks later, we had our first customer, and then we ran like hell to, to grow revenue. How did you know that that was, that was a product that you needed to work on? You said you experimented with a bunch of different ideas, but how did you know once you'd hit the idea that you needed to run with? Because customers were buying it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you just get better at going, all right, like, it's not, and this is a mistake I think some people make, which is they're doing customer discovery. So it's good to do research, good to listen to customers, good to interview them and try and work out what the real problem is. But then sometimes people get caught up trying to get the customer to tell them what to build and they're never going to tell you because they don't know. But you do have to validate your idea. So what happens is you go sit in the corner and you dream up what you think the world needs. And then you take that idea and you go pitch it to people that should buy it and you say to them, look, this is what I want to build. If I build this, will you buy it? And the answer to that question tells you whether or not you have a product. And it sounds easy to say somebody said yes. And of course, you hear a lot of no's and you have to kind of listen to why they're saying no. And one of the things we learned on the first product was... The thing that kills you is when you go and you show somebody and they're like, oh, this would be awesome if only it had dot, dot, dot. And so like the, the classic one, I, I, I was actually talking about the team on this the other day. It's like people are like, oh, this would be amazing, but only if could it just be integrated with my calendar? And for me, that's actually a death knell. Like what they're saying is it's not working. That when you have a startup that's going to work, people are going to buy. And by buy, it doesn't have to be money. For some people, just them spending time is more valuable than them paying you. But it means that they're using it in spite of the product, not just because of it. And obviously, you have to build a good product. But what you're looking for is that you found a pain point that is painful enough 
that there is no solution. And if you come along and just show somebody something that half works, they're out jumping out of their skin. And that's what you're looking for. And that's what took us a little while to realize that that's the thing that we needed. How were you letting people know that you existed? Like what was your marketing strategy in those early days? Anything and everything. Um, you know, as we started to build it out, I was fortunate because I'd been a CEO, I had some good networks. And so I could go reach out to those people. I used to be a member of a thing called Tech, which is the CEO, um, the executive connection. It's called Vistage, anyway, TC. So I was already actually on the speaking circuit talking to CEOs anyway. Our very first customer, which was Save the Children, I very first paying customer was Save the Children. Our first customer was Make-A-Wish, uh, which was a not-for-profit uh, deal. But Save the Children came through um, the CEO, Susan. Her son and my son went to school together. And we, we were chatting at a, at a school event and I was telling her what she, I was doing. And she's like, oh, this is really interesting. I'm actually trying to tackle that problem right now. So it's like, it comes from wherever it comes from. Uh, and you know, one of, there's lots of downsides to trying to do a startup and kids. One of the upsides is you get to meet lots of interesting people in the schoolyard. So it came from that. As we started to get a bit more success, we started getting traction in the US. And we won some of our early customers because somebody that I knew in Melbourne was now working for a US company and he told them to look at it and then they become a customer. And so we started spending more time in San Francisco and we would literally fly over there, stay in the lowest rent hotels you can imagine, which is pretty low rent in San Francisco. <laughs> we used to go to this, there was this kind of place called Sugar. It was a cafe slash bar. And the reason we liked it was that it was open from, it was basically open all the time. Uh, and it had ch both cheap coffee and cheap beer. And so we would sort of house ourselves there, pull out our laptops, and we would make a game of cold emailing CEOs and heads of people to see who could get a meeting. <laughs> and so like, I remember Jason and John and Doug and Rod and I are there going, I'm going to try this. I'm going to use this angle. Let's see what happens. And, you know, 10, 10 things would go out. And John wrote this uh, really cool little app where he realized that it's with the subliminal messaging. When you reach out to somebody, if they've seen you on LinkedIn, then they feel like they know you. And so what he did was he wrote a little thing that would basically crawl LinkedIn and look at all these people's profiles so that your face would appear in their profile <laughs> saying this person looked at you. And it was amazing how effective it was because we would reach yeah. out to people and they're like, oh, yeah, I've heard of you. And they only heard of you because we stalked you. <laughs> we, we hit the LinkedIn rate limits, so we weren't able to you know, scale that. Otherwise, we may have turned it into a product. That's amazing. <laughs> As a startup, your role is to make sure that your customers know you exist. But once you reach out to them, you have to sell them on your idea. Often this is a balancing act because you want to get great clients, but you don't want to waste time and money trying to sell clients on a product that they aren't ready to buy. For CultureAmp, the sales pitch was about identifying the pain points and then showing their prospective clients that their platform was the right answer. So we were saying to people, look, culture matters and if you're going to make it matter you have to measure it and you have to bring data to bear and we still say it to this day why is it that you know so much about somebody who might buy a hamburger from you but you know so little about somebody who's been working for 10 years and there were people that were very receptive to that and they were looking around going yeah how do I make this better and you know Jason who's actually a scientist he had worked for people in the employee engagement space. He worked for Towers Watson. He worked for Connexa. So he knew how to do all this stuff. And he's saying to them, I've been doing this for five years and here are all the problems and here's why, uh, you know, Coltram solves those. And 
that for us was the telling point was people were like, yeah, even though you're a startup, even though you're a small place, we still want to try this because if this works, this is what we need. And one of our early customers is nine months into this product, we won Adobe as a customer. And we still have them to this day as a you know big global brand. We've done a lot of great work together and they're an amazing team. I remember when we won them as a customer, they had more people on the team working on working with Coltramp than we had in the company. And what's interesting is that if you go back like four or five months earlier, we had a call. So John, one of our co-founders, he was in Toronto at the time, I think, somewhere in Canada, staying at his brother's place. Doug, Rod, and I were here and we got an inbound. So we had a website. Someone from Adobe reached out to us, um, Ellie Gates and Donna. No, it was Ellie Gates who reached out to us and said, hey, you know, I like what you're doing. Can I take a look at it? We did some demos over the web. They're like, this is great. And then they reached out and said, look, we've got a big meeting with all the HR leaders. Can you come and present to us in San Jose? And so we had a call to decide whether we should spend $400 on an airline ticket to go to San Jose. And it was a robust discussion because there was not broad agreement that this was a good use of the limited amount of money we had. Mm-hmm. But we ultimately ended up going, it was like a 51-49 line ball call and we we're like, oh, well, what the hell, we should do it. So John paid the 400 bucks and went and presented to them. We didn't actually think it would turn into anything. Uh, you know, A little bit later, we had Adobe as a customer. And what we found out later is that Ellie, who, who's the, the woman who was leading the engagement project, through the whole process, I remember just before we got the deal, I was actually at my best friend's wedding and I had this call with them and they're like, all right, we love everything, but can you can you make sure that we're comfortable that you can deliver this? Like there's a lot riding on this. And I remember at the time, like I was late for the um, the bridal party rehearsal thing and I just, I didn't lose my temper. I just kind of said, look, I've worked for Hollywood. I've had Spielberg yelling at us saying we have to do this, that or the other. I will get it done. No matter what happens, we will get this done. And I think that was just enough to give them the confidence. And Ellie told us years later that she made the call to go with Coltramp. She said, we're going off the vendor we're on. We're going to use Coltramp. Her mentor at the time said, Ellie, this is a career-limiting move. If this goes wrong, you will, you will, this will not look good for you. And she said, I believe in these, these guys. I believe in this team. And so early on, you need that. You need customers that have the problem you're trying to solve and then you just have to show up and you have to convince them. And it goes back to what I said earlier about the skill in convincing people you have no right to come and want to work for you. You also have to have somehow convince customers you have no right to yet have to want to work with you. You talk a lot about um, about story and that being a really important aspect. Um, how do you think that your career in film influenced your ability to tell an engaging story about your business at, at Culturamp? Massively. I, I don't think I realized at the time. It, it's funny because I, I think I, I spend more time thinking about storytelling now than I did when I was in film. But there's a huge parallel between the two. And uh, funnily enough, I was I gave a presentation once and somebody said, oh, what's the one book that you think we should read? And I have a big book list and I love reading and I'm always suggesting books. And I, said, I was thinking about it. And I said, Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell, mm. um, because it's core mythology. And uh, and I still hold to it, but somebody came to me and said, it's a little dry. <laughs> Uh, so maybe maybe read the Bill Moyer um, interview with uh, Joseph Campbell instead because that's kind of like a nicer a- access to it. But no, I, I think I learnt a ton uh, in Hollywood around how to tell stories. And one of the things that I've been able to use in the HR world is that I in turn now get to teach people in the HR world how to do this too. So a lot of what we do is actually help people. How do you tell stories with data? How do you help people do things? And, you know, I say people say, oh, everything has to be ROI. 
ROI is cognitive dissonance on a decision you've already made. You've got to get people at the heart. You have to give people a reason to want to believe. There is nobody better in the world at doing that than Hollywood. There's a lot to learn. And we'll be back with more of Culture Amp's story after this quick break. CultureAmp was breaking into international markets, and they'd landed Adobe as a key customer. But it still took them four years to get a million dollars in recurring revenue. And in 2015, they decided to raise their Series A of $6.3 million. So given the company was already making consistent revenue, why raise money at all from VCs who demand scale and returns? So we were fortunate because we were starting to win a lot of companies in the Valley. And so I was already talking to a lot of VCs. And one of the things that gave me pause was if we were going to raise money, I wanted to do two things, not just one. So anybody that wants to raise money has to have a business model and a business that is investable, that can be scaled. What was important to me and what is still fundamentally important to me at CultureAmp is not just that we build a successful company. So we'll get to $100 million in revenue in the not too distant future, we're not very far away from it. That's great. It's a it's a nice number in the valley. What I what I care about more than that is what type of company are we at 100 million? You know, are we building a culture first company scale? And the question for me was, if I'm going to take money from somebody, I need to know that they believe not only in building a successful business, but they build in believing a successful business the right way. And by the right way, I mean my way. <laughs> um, because we do some things a little differently because we believe in a different world of work and a better world of work. And so, for example, famously, we don't pay commission to salespeople, and I can talk about that and why we do it. So I was cautious about raising money. We were cautious about raising money. We'd had a few discussions. We had some conversations. We knew a fair amount about the Valley because we had a lot of customers there. And what happened was I was actually in San Francisco with John. We were on our way to – we were going to go to the Bridge School Benefit, which is a concert that's put up there. And I get this email from Aiden Senquit at Felicis, and he says – Uh, The last three board decks that I've had had data from your company in it. Who are you and can we meet? Mm -hmm. And so John and I kind of rendezvoused on a Saturday and uh, caught up with um, Aiden in Palo Alto. And he sort of explained he he was like employee number 200 or something at Google. He was a CFO of a Turkish pharma company before, but he did a lot of their expansion. And he was one of the first VCs that I had spoken to who truly believed you could build a great business outside of Silicon Valley. And he gave us a lot of confidence. And so we started chatting. And then as the months went by, we had an advisor meeting. So Scott Farquhar was an advisor of mine and Paul McCartney, and both in Sydney. We, Rod, Doug, John, and I flew up to Sydney. And we had a, it wasn't a board meeting, but an advisor meeting. And we talked about everything. We said, look, we think there's an opportunity here for us to go faster. We think there's an opportunity to do something well. What, what does everybody think? And Scott did this you know, really good speech where he basically said, look, if you've got product market fit, you have no competition, you have clean air, put the foot down, go for it. And so we said, all right, we should do it. And we said, here's roughly the terms that we think we should get. Here's the valuation we think we should be able to get. And everyone's like, if you can get that, do it. That's That would be fantastic. You know, We're not sure you can. Maybe you'll have to change it. Get in the taxi. We're on the way to the airport. And my phone rings. So I'm sitting between Rod and Doug and John's in the front seat. And I take the call. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. That's great. 
what are the numbers? Okay, cool. I've got the term sheet that we just talked about. So Iden had basically called me and said, I want to put a term sheet on the table. Here are the numbers. We ended up negotiating a little bit and off we went. And for us, it was just, if we don't do this, are we going to be able to execute on our mission and vision? That was really what it came down to. And we just felt like we could do it without it. We could keep bootstrapping the company. We were cash flow positive, but we weren't going to get there fast enough. We weren't going to make a bigger difference in the world. We weren't going to get to 100 million. And today, we don't. We the way we talk about it is it's we don't measure our impact in terms of dollars. We measure it in terms of people. And so, what we're focused on is what does it mean to amplify what 100 million people are capable of being. And that's the next five to two year journey. We couldn't have done that without VC backing. Hmm. Do you think there's too much of a focus on on VC backing in the startup world in that a lot of people see it as like this is the path to success. Mm. But at the point that you guys took VC backing, you already had a sustainable business. Yeah, look, I think it, I don't necessarily know that the focus, there's a problem with the focus on VC. I think there's a definitely an unhealthy focus on fundraising. So one of the things we always talk about is like, you know, I've raised quite a lot of money, um, which is crazy because I don't really like doing it. And when we do it and we close it, like the first time, I think it was our Series B or our Series C, we closed and went, all right, cool, done. We had a little conversation about it. And I got up and said, let's not celebrate raising the money. Let's celebrate what we do with it. And one of the people that had joined us was at a previous company. He's like, this is so different. He said, like, we used to have the biggest parties when we raise money. Raising money doesn't mean anything. It doesn't prove anything. The companies that raise the most money don't win. It's what you do with the money that matters. And so I think there's an unhealthy obsession on raising money and not enough of an obsession on what you do with the money. The other thing is there's definitely an unhealthy obsession on growth and speed. I remember doing an Ask Me Anything and somebody said, they kind of pulled out their data and they said, oh, it took you four years to get to a million. What could you have done to do that faster? I can think of a lot of things we could do to do that faster, but I actually think it's the wrong question because early on, you get to a million faster by doing a bunch of stuff that doesn't mean you have a better business. And I don't think there's a huge correlation between how fast you get from zero to one and how successful your business is. Once you get to one million, getting from one to 10 quickly is much more predictive of whether you're going to get to 50 or 100. So there's a certain point at which if you're growing, you just need to put the foot down and go for it. But early on, I think it's better to spend your time going, are we solving the right problem? Do we really have a customer? Do we have product market fit? Those types of things. CultureAmp has raised almost $160 million, and their Series E round in late 2019 valued them at more than a billion dollars. Throughout their journey, they've expanded into a bunch of international markets, opening offices in San Francisco, New York, London, and of course their home base is in Melbourne. Opening a new office offers a lot of possibilities for a business looking to move into a new market and put boots on the ground. But how do you decide where your company should even be? So we, we sat down and we said, what are the most expensive cities in the world for us to have an office? <laughs> where is it going to cost so much for rent that we're going to blanch every time we have to move? <laughs> and we chose those. Um, that could have been the case uh, if you looked at where we ended up. No, off Series A, we opened our San Francisco office. And that came down to the fact that basically we had customers in San Francisco and we wanted to learn how to be a great global growth business. And that's where global growth businesses are built. So we opened there. When we did our Series B, we opened our New York office. And that, once again, was that's where our customers were. I mean, there's a huge concentration on the eastern seaboard of, of the sorts of companies we target. And then 
the following year around our Series C, we opened our London office. Funnily enough, we opened our London office the day of Brexit. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Whole nother thing, conversation we can have. Um, but it, London for me came from the fact that from the beginning, it was, I want to build a global business. Mm. And I think one thing is that in the US, it's really easy to be quite myopic about only building North American business. In North America is still like almost two thirds of our revenue. But from the beginning, I wanted to build a global business. That meant Europe obviously means Asia and other places too. So that's where it came from. So every year we opened a new office. Uh, and then the fourth year, I was very happy not to. Culture Amp now has a team of close to 400 people and they're continuing their rapid expansion. So how do you deal with rapid growth in a global business? As best we can. Um, one of the things we decisions, one of the ways we run the company is we try not to be a headquarter with satellite offices. So often people say, oh, so you have go to market in those offices. Well, yes, but we actually think about it in a bigger way. So I have half my exec team in San Francisco, half here. Um, you know, we have key people around the place and we try and think about really being one company in multiple locations. Um, it's a huge challenge. I mean, we run a, a, an all camp or an all hands, you know, first it was just San Francisco and Melbourne. That was pretty easy. Uh, and then we had New York, which made it a bit more complicated. When we brought London online, when that broke, because there is no time where everybody can be online. So we had to change that. And one of the things we did is we set up a cadence where it oscillates between the different time zones and there's an office that's not expected to be online and they watch it on replay. And what was critical was that that was true for all the offices. So even though uh, even though Melbourne has half the company, there is a every third or fourth, it's every third because the way we do the time zones, every third all camp, Melbourne's offline. We right. didn't say, here are the two time slots, we'll oscillate between evening and afternoon to catch US and, and Europe. And so that was really about trying to equalize that. You know, are we perfect? No. It's a constant challenge making sure that if you're the smallest office or you're the furthest away, that you feel like you're getting the same experience that other people have and it's not something that we've cracked the nut on yet. How do you deal with things like communication? Get up early, go to bed late. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's hard. It's mm. just really hard. I, I, you know, That's the nature of working in a global world though. Um, and one of the things that I've always said uh, when I hired my execs in San Francisco, one of the things I said to them is like, I don't want the distance to be your problem. I'm happy to take calls at six in the morning. I'm happy to do whatever needed to make this work. So you talk, you talk a lot about this idea of building culture first companies. Um, what do you mean by that? And why is it so important that companies focus on culture in the first instance? I have a slide that I often use, which is tangible versus intangible asset backing of the S&P 500 since 1975. So in 1975, 80% of the value of the S&P 500, which is one of the indexes in the American Stock Exchange, was tangible. It was the factories, it was your inventory, it was the cash, it was things you could see. Now, that's 25%. And so what's happening is the value we're creating in the businesses we have is increasingly intangible. So some of that is brand and, and IP and other things, but a lot of it is in the heads of your people. So when you look at it that way, most of the value that we're creating in our business comes from the minds of the people that work for us. And back in 1938, Henry Ford said, why is it when all I want is a pair of hands, I get a brain attached? That's the tangible way of managing the world. The intangible way of managing the world is to realize that you need the brains, not the hand. And so for me, that's really what drives this and why this is so important is it's almost logically obvious. Mm. Most of the value is intangible. The intangible comes from people. Working out how to maximize what those people are capable of, working out how to amplify what those people can be, 
that's how you generate the most value. And I think that's the positive side. The positive side is that's where the opportunity is. The flip of it, the negative version of it is that if you think about X hundred years ago, all you had to do was make money. Didn't matter if you destroyed the environment. Didn't matter if you trampled over people's human rights. You just had to make money. As time has gone on, we've realized that kind of sucks and we really need to hold people to account to more. You can't destroy the environment. You have a duty of care to the people that you have. And even just last week, the Business Roundtable in the US came out and said, we believe that we need to update the definition of a corporation to have to do more than have a fiduciary duty to shareholders. We need to put people into the equation. And so that's driving it too. There's a carrot and a stick. So what does it mean? Like, okay, cool, culture's important. And so culture first means putting culture first because we believe it's the biggest opportunity you have. And so well, what does a culture first company look like? I think there's probably three things that we think about. The first one is that it's foundational. It's kind of what I was just saying. The culture is there whether you choose to implement it or not. The results you get in your business are the results of your culture. The culture is what's driving. And, you know, we're not the first people to say this, you know, culture is strategy for breakfast, you know, all those sorts of things. That's what it means. It's believing that culture is foundational. The second thing is culture is relational. It is the way we interact with each other. And, you know, there are a hundred definitions of what culture means. There's the anthropological definition, the IO psychology definition. But I kind of like this idea that culture is how things are done around here. It's how you and I interact, what the norms are, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And then most importantly, culture is alive. It's something that changes. It's something that grows. It's something that powers things. And so for a company to believe in culture first, it basically comes down to, do you think culture matters? Do you think culture is the source of competitive advantage? And if it is, what are you doing about it? And I think back, and a lot of what we do is learning from what's happened in marketing and brand. And uh, Gary Birtwistle, who's an amazing brand thought leader here in Australia, said to me once, Brand is what happens in your customer's brain when they hear your name or your prospect's brain when they hear your name. And you can choose to influence it or not. Marketing is just trying to influence it, trying to influence what's going on. Culture is the same thing. Like the culture is there whether you do anything or not. Being culture first is just saying, I want to be intentional about what that experience is. What makes a good culture? I think the first thing is to recognize that there is no perfect culture. That's a cult. You know, it it has to be appropriate. It has to be right for the situation. So I like to say brand is a promise to a customer. Culture is how you deliver that promise. So how do you connect these two? How does the culture you're creating underpin the business you're trying to build? You know, in one organization, an incredibly thrifty, frugal, almost mean culture would be toxic. In a different situation, that's the foundation of an amazing business. And so it's, it has to be appropriate. And, and I think intentionality for me is the most important thing. And it's where I come back to brand. Like there's no universally great brand. If you tried to be everything to everybody, it's horrible. Great brands stand for something. Great brands turn some people off. Cultures stand for something. And for me, the kind of core of it is a great culture is one that makes you want to be a better version of yourself. And so if you if you remember the film, um, As Good As It Gets, and there's, mm-hmm. you know, Helen Hunt and uh, Jack Nicholson, and Jack Nicholson's this borderline personality disorder writer who's struggling with all these things, and he ends up in this relationship with Helen Hunt, and he's being not very nice. And at a certain point, she's like, why are you doing this? Like, 
let's just give it up. This, what's the point? And he looks at her and he says, because you make me want to be a better man. That's mm. why I'm doing this. And so for me, a great culture is one that for the people that turn up to work, that culture makes them want to be a better version of the person they want to be. It's not brainwashing. It's just an opportunity. Do you have any advice for companies that are, you know, starting their journey or maybe sort of starting to hit this growth phase where companies are likely to run into problems with culture, especially around, you know, as they start to scale as businesses, um, to incorporate values that actually embed a good culture into the company? I think one of the things that the foundational ideas that we built Culture Amp on, and it's inherent in one of our values, which is learn faster through feedback, it's inherent in why we built the tool, is this concept of learn, act, repeat, learn, act, repeat, learn, act, repeat. And so to commit yourself to the process of listening, first of all, you don't create culture, you uncover it. The culture is already there. And so what you're doing, um, you know, there's this this old story of uh, finding carving a bear out of stone and the person goes down to the to the riverbank and looks for the stone and no not this one not this one the week goes by and then on the on on the fifth day picks up a stone and it was a stone that they picked up before and they hold it and they look and go ah here it is now all i have to do is remove the bits of the stone that are not the bear and so the idea is the bear is already in the stone you're just taking pieces away so the first thing is you have to learn to listen you have to go listen to your people you have to uncover what is already there once you uncover that you go through the process of going, okay, what have we learned? What can we do differently? How can we maybe embed this more? Or how can we talk about this? Or how can we make this work for ourselves? And then you listen again. So it's it's like committing to the process. It's not a one shot. It's not that's going to happen once. And it's really about intentionality. And it's about holding up the mirror and being accountable for what you see. And so too often, I think people look at it and go, I want a high performance culture. Like, sure, so does everybody. But high performance at what? And what even over what? And what does this mean? Like, what are you willing to sacrifice for and why? And why will your people care? Because it's only if you can create a place where people go, you know what? I believe in what you believe in and I'm willing to hurt and hopefully not physically, but I stay a little longer than I might otherwise. You know, one way of measuring the what I what you call engagement is what I call a five o'clock test. Person's walking out, there's five o'clock, person's walking out the door and the phone rings. Do they pick up the phone or not? That will tell you a lot about how they think about the company. And fear will not get them to pick up that phone. What What if you do hold that mirror up and you don't like what you see? What do you do? First of all, congratulate yourself for actually looking and not seeing past it. Like The truth of it is that unlike almost every other metric in a business, culture is not up and to the right. There's no... If it was good at five, it'll be better at six and seven and eight and nine. So it's not just a matter of going, how good are we? It's about going, all right, what's working? What's not working? And what can we focus on? And how can we make it better? And I think what the good companies do is they keep constantly asking this question of what is the experience we want our people to have and measuring if it's occurring. And they're not saying we want our people to be happy. Happiness is a part of what it means to be human. There's a great book called The Happiness Trap. And he talks about the fact we pathologize being happy. And funnily enough, the pursuit of happiness is what makes people unhappy sometimes. It's like our job at work is not to make people happy all the time. Our job is to give them meaningful work, to help them 
feel like they're being grown and developed and listened to and they have a place to belong. And sometimes that will lead to them feeling happy. Hopefully they'll feel happy more than they don't. But we're not saying, I want you to be happy. What we're saying is, in this culture, in this company, for these clients, with this brand, this is the type of organization we want to be. These things are important. And if you're not getting those things, we want to make sure you do. And so it's really shifting it around and, and not thinking of it as an entitlement thing, but just thinking it as a, in the same way as brand, how do you want your customer to feel when they interact with your product? Mm. Turn around, have the same thought about how you want your people to feel when they interact with your company. Thanks to Didier Elzinger for taking the time to speak with me for this story. Building a Unicorn is a Lawson Media production. You can find out more about the show or get episode transcripts at our website, buildingaunicorn.com. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson, editing and mixing by James Parkinson. Our theme music is by Nick Buchanan and our artwork is by Andrew Millist. Throughout 2020, we'll be bringing you a lot more episodes of Building a Unicorn. You can expect to see a new episode in your feed every two weeks. If you want to give us any feedback on the show or tell us about your own startup, please reach out to us, unicorn at lawson.media. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Build a Unicorn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>